Well, good morning. Let me invite you to take out this rather extensive handout. I think it'll be helpful for you this morning. Take out this handout, if you would, please. And at the same time, turn in your Bibles to our New Testament reading for the morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, this text from Paul's letter to the Corinthians is simply put, difficult, and frightening. But it is the advantage of uh, churches like us that use a lectionary because the lectionary takes us to those passages that we would otherwise probably not look at and certainly I would not want to preach on. This is a hard text. But the bottom line to it is this. All of us us who want to finish the Christian race need to take heed to ourselves. If a man or woman thinks that they stand strong in the faith and are standing tall, then they need to pay attention lest they fall. In other words, you and I need to obtain the grace of God, and not presume upon it. Now, chapter 10 lies right at the heart of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul had actually spent two long years founding this church at Corinth. And it was, as we understand, a dramatic and spirit-filled church and full of problems. In fact, this letter of 1 Corinthians Corinthians was written by Paul in Ephesus because he had received reports about what was going on at the church in Corinth. And and the church itself had actually written a letter to Paul, and they had a laundry list of questions and problems that they wanted to ask him about. And also, parenthetically, That letter seemed to be full of a lot of boasting and bragging about how well things were really going in the church. (laughs) So 1 Corinthians is Paul's response. Now every reader of the letter of 1 Corinthians over the centuries has had pause to ask the question, who exactly were these Corinthians? On the one hand, they seem to be on fire for the Lord. On the other hand, they seem to be all messed up. Or could it possibly be that they are a whole lot like the church has always been everywhere? A mixture of the best spiritual motives and intentions, and at the same time, full of failures, disobedience, and yes, just plain old sin. And I would propose to you this morning that the Holy Spirit has preserved this letter for us, and particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because the Corinthians are, in fact, every church. Their temptations, their successes, and their failures are pretty much like ours today. Well, let me invite you, as we start off, then, to look at the outline of the book that I've given you there. 
you can see how our New Testament text for the morning actually ties in with the rest of the letter. Note the litany of problems that plagued the Corinthian church. There were dissensions. There was immorality. There were lawsuits. There was fornication. There were marriage problems. And then in chapter 8, Paul begins to write about another problem that they're having, food offered to idols. And right in the middle of all that is chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. Now, our chapter, our passage for the morning, really doesn't have a whole lot to do with food offered to idols. Instead, it's a separate teaching. It's almost as if Paul were saying, he stops right there in the middle of his exhortation, and he says, are you guys listening? Are you all paying attention out there? Now, this might look to you like this is some minor churchy matter of some sort, but I'm telling you, what we're talking about here is the life and death of your own soul. Are you really listening? Now, why do I say that? Well, throughout the letter of Corinthians, Paul has woven in principles that underlie the instructions that he gives throughout the letter. Here are two of them. I've given them to you all on the second page of your handout there. Here's the first principle. Just as sexual holiness is the prerequisite for true human union of male and female, so too, personal holiness is the prerequisite for the true union of your soul and God. Sexual purity goes hand in hand with your soul being rightly related to God. Now, do you see why this sanctity of marriage thing of one man and one woman is so important to the church? It's a lot more than just a social good principle. Of course, it is that. But Paul is at pains to argue that it has to do with the essential welfare of your soul. Well, with that as a background then, let's look and see exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 14. Well, in verses 1 through 4, Paul recounts from the book of Exodus how the children of Israel escaped Egypt through the Red Sea. And whether it is the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments version or the Ridley Scott version, all of us have that picture right there in our mind of what that looked like. Then, once Israel reached safely the far shore, God began to make provision for his people. He led them with a cloud. He fed them with manna. He gave them water to drink gushing from the rock. Fantastic! Hallelujah! The good guys win! Success! But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
You see, Paul isn't just recounting some good stories from the quaint old days of Israel. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then what follows are four solemn commands. Flee idolatry, flee fornication, don't despise God's goodness, don't grumble. Then, verses 11 and 12, and Paul writes, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, friends, give heed to yourselves. Then finally, in verses 13 and 14, Paul shares the positive side of his warnings. He says, no temptation is overtaking you, but what is common to man? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. In other words, Paul is saying, look, friends, God wants you to succeed. God has no pleasure in overthrowing you in the wilderness. He will be present to help you in every temptation if that is the desire of your heart. Wow. Where did Paul come up with this stuff? Is this just his grandmother's mores? Is this just the Victorian morality of the Greco-Roman world? Not hardly. Paul came to his understanding about these things by reflecting on the scriptures. You see, in verses 6 through 10, Paul goes back to four separate Old Testament passages. The first passage is from Exodus 32, the golden calf. Now, everybody here this morning knows the story. If you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie. But note carefully what Paul cites, Exodus 32, 6. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, in case you missed it, friends, this is a euphemism here, okay? It's as play as in foreplay, okay? You see this connection again about this close identification of sexual impurity and idolatry. Now, his second citation is from Numbers 25. Thank you, Steve. We threw a curveball at you this morning. You know, when you, when you listen to that text, it's an astonishing passage. There was Israel on the very verge of success. They were about to cross over the Jordan and go over into the Promised Land. The ones that had survived the 30-plus years in the wilderness were already poised to receive God's promises. But, 
They were deceived by their enemies into sexual immorality and idolatry. Radical measures were required to purge such from the camp. Parenthetically here, you think God's serious about this stuff? The third illusion is taken from Numbers 21. The people in Numbers 21 despise God's lovely provision for them. You see, they wanted their own food. They didn't want that heavenly manna stuff. So more of them were overthrown in the wilderness by serpents. And the last illusion is taken from Numbers 14. In Numbers 14, the people grumble at their leaders. They didn't want to follow their leaders. So you know what? God gave them exactly what they wanted. They didn't follow their leaders into the promised land. They were left in the wilderness for dead. Whew. Okay, there's a lot of pieces lying on the ground here. What in the world does all this mean? What is 1 Corinthians 10 trying to teach us? Well, the first thing is pretty obvious. All of Scripture has been given for our instruction. It is the frivolous Christian that says, well, you know, that was the Old Testament, but we live under the New Testament. Such a Christian is a babe in Christ. The Bible of the apostles was the Old Testament. And far from its lessons being irrelevant, they need to be deeply impressed on our souls. Secondly, notice that when Paul says, take heed lest you fall, he is speaking to baptized believers who receive the Lord's communion. He is speaking not to the fringe out there somewhere. He's talking to the very core of the Corinthian church. And he says, church, learn by analogy from the Israelites. All received the baptism of the Red Sea. All the Israelites ate the bread of heaven. All drank the spiritual drink. But with Oh, not some, but with most, he was not pleased, and they were overthrown. They never made it to the promised land. As a result, Paul teaches this thirdly. He says, it is possible to make choices that will separate us from the grace of God. It is possible to make choices that will separate us from the grace of God. Now, I have more to say about that in a minute. But if that word puts cold fear into your heart, well, I have good news for you. Then you are on the pilgrim way. But if this morning you receive what I have just said with, hey, I'm good, no worries, mate then you are exactly the person that Paul is writing about here. Here's the fourth thing that Paul is teaching. 
To be separated from the grace of God can bring ruin and destruction on the day of judgment. The fifth thing that we are to learn from this passage is the very nature of these dangerous wrong choices. Look at the things that Paul warns us about. First of all, covetousness. Now, what is covetousness? Well, simply put, it is to love or long for more than the Lord God has given us. But friends, covetousness is a sneaky thing. I find that it has overtaken me before I am even aware of it. Here's a little self-assessment tool that may be useful to you. You know that statement that the credit card company sends you at the end of the year? It says where you spent all your money this year. Well, maybe you take that and you have a private conversation with the Lord. I mean, not with anybody else, just the Lord. As you look over that statement, you let Jesus' words ring in your ears. You cannot love God and stuff. I find that one hits real close to home for me. Paul says another wrong choice is idolatry. You see, idolatry is to reverence or worship another besides the Lord God. So who's your favorite rock star? And how about them dogs? We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, says Paul. The word here is fornication. Now, what is fornication? It's perfectly straightforward. Any sexual activity outside the bounds of the marriage of one man and one woman. Any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage of one man and one woman. Fornication is to bring both our bodies and our souls into an unholy union with the result that it breaks our union with a holy God. But look at the wrong choice that Paul lists next. Ingratitude. Really? Ingratitude? Is ingratitude really a soul destroyer? Yes, it is. For it is to despise the gifts that God has given us in his love and his sovereignty. Ingratitude is to reject God's sovereign reign over our life. Lord, I don't want my life to look like this. I want it to look like that. Lord, I don't want to live in Georgia. I want to live at 8,000 feet in the Colorado Rockies. And the Lord says, Son, will you follow me? For my way is the best way out of the wilderness. 
Closely related to that is grumbling. <laughs> grumbling. What's grumbling? It's to complain about our leaders. <laughs> so what's the problem with that? Who ever heard of a perfect leader? Well, true enough. But you see, to grumble is to resist God's future for us. When you're out in the wilderness, there are probably a dozen different directions that you can go. And when you're truly in the wilderness, pretty much they all look alike. And the way that leads to the promised land doesn't necessarily look like the best path to follow. In fact, there may be other paths that look like they are more inviting. And to know which is the right path takes wisdom that only God can give. And he gives that wisdom to his leaders. So to grumble against them is to grumble against the wisdom that God gives. Well, I suspect that the Corinthians would have been tempted to receive all this teaching as a heavy and difficult thing. In a way, it kind of is busting their chops here. But Paul adds one thing more, and it is a word of hope. It's the sixth thing he wants them to know. Yes, there are many dangerous and deadly choices that the Corinthians could make. But there is, in every single situation, a choice that will bring them joy, victory, and peace. And if we turn our heart toward God, then God will be present for us, enabling us to make the right choice. Turn to God, and God will turn to you. Well, friends, this is indeed a heavy word. How should we apply this to our life? I do not say our lives, because we're not talking about a corporate issue here this morning. What we're talking about is me, Henry Baldwin. How do I stand with God? Not your mother, not your father, not your brother, not those people out in church somewhere. We're talking about me. We're talking about you and God. Make no mistake about it, the people that Paul is talking to here are believers. He is writing to those who are baptized and take communion, and he says to them, do not presume upon the grace of God. See, the moment that we think, hey, I got this down pat, the moment that God brings sin to mind and we say, it's not so bad. I've got good reasons for doing what I'm doing. That is the very moment that we've turned away from God and back toward the wilderness. Maybe if you're paying attention here this morning, you might rightly say to me, Henry, doesn't our religion teach us that you can't lose your salvation? I mean, if I'm a genuine believer, won't God give me grace to finish the race? Yes, absolutely. Indeed, the Lord knows all those who are his. But Paul says this, Nevertheless, let everyone who names the name of the Lord Depart from iniquity. 
You see, God knows exactly who will be there at the finish line. He knew it before the foundations of the world. But that's not where you and I live. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, see to it that no one failed to obtain the grace of God. That's why God has made a way of escape in every temptation. But you see, you and I live in the place where we have to do that by making a choice. What this morning if you find yourself right in the wilderness? What if you realize, I have turned away? I have sinned. Is there no hope? Oh yes, friends, there is hope. There is abundant hope because God longs to have compassion on you if you will humble yourself and return. God longs to give you grace and put you on the way. That's why Jesus died. Now this morning, if you find that your sin is of a particularly grievous nature, then I invite you to seek me out for the solemn rite of the penitent. For centuries, the church has practiced confession to a priest. Why? Because a priest can forgive your sins? No, of course not. Nobody can forgive your sins, but Christ only. But in this ancient rite, if you come seeking forgiveness, particularly in a matter which has caused significant harm to yourself or to others, you can experience God's forgiveness. You can hear words of God's absolution, and you can be confident of your restoration to the grace of God. Now, no one has to do this, of course, but all may. And some, given the weighty nature of their sin, probably ought to, as a milestone of their turning back to the grace of God. Now, dear ones, I admit this morning, this is a heavy word for us from the Apostle Paul. But I assure you that he writes out of his great love for the flock in Corinth. His concern is that they not fall in the wilderness and fail to finish the journey to the promised land. And he writes because with the prophet Isaiah, he longs to say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen.